This call when? may be recorded or transcribed. Hello, my father. Uh, hi, Ernie. How are you? Doing good. I had lunch with Larry Nardi from our church. Oh, yeah. Okay. I had to bump our call back, but it was good. Interestingly, the uh, the topic was, uh, you know, general covering, you know, some of the things that are going on in society and in the church. Uh, but one of the themes that came up was this issue of being reconciled with our fathers. Uh, Larry has a really powerful story about with his father, who uh, was definitely not a Christian and living a very uh, tragic lifestyle. And Larry uh, felt God calling him to really honor his father and mother. Yeah. And he really did, you know, brought his father up here and reconciled with him. His father's wow. uh, ailing now, but, you know, it was really a redemptive story. And a lot of the issues we're thinking at our church may date back to kind of the trauma around its birth, where it had yeah. these really, you know, all these hippies from the Jesus People Movement and then there was a thing called the discipleship movement, uh, which kind of tried to create the plan and order among all these same hippies who had no rules or boundaries or anything. Wow. And it was kind of good for the people, or helpful for the people underneath them who had the structure. It was incredibly toxic for the leadership who ended up having all this power and control over other people's lives and no accountability. And so it ended badly. And it led to the whole word discipleship becoming kind of a dirty word in our church, which kind of oh, freaked me out when I came in there and tried to talk about discipleship. It goes, we don't do discipleship here. It's like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> it's like, okay. I, I can understand you may not want to use that word, but we should like try to find a way to do what Jesus said. But, you know, so, and so. Uh, for something, yeah. But, you know, the, uh, the, the, the interesting thing is that, like, you know, uh, both with our church, and I think with all the problems we have in society, a lot of it is uh, sort of anger at father figures who we feel have let us down. Yeah. One second, Ernie. Uh, I'm with Ernie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, this is being recorded, right? Yes, so, it's being recorded. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, we can talk about the other issues later. That. Yeah, I think so, because uh, I don't know if you mentioned last names. So anyway, that's okay. Yeah. Um, okay, Ma. So, how are you doing? Doing good. I was deciding that, just realizing that. So, I was kind of tickled because, you know, the whole thing we were talking about, like, it seems like maybe the thing the body of Christ really needs as a whole is to mm. learn how to be reconciled to our fathers. Mm, and so, the fact that we are doing this phone call together is. Uh, yeah, but this is, this is, I, I hope we are reconciled. I hope we are reconciled. But yeah, so what's interesting is that I was thinking about that when we were talking about Larry's story. Is it seems like the the narrative arc is that there's a period of renunciation where you break away and say, look, that's not who I am. I need to distance myself from my past. But yeah. then there's another step, which is reconciliation, where you say, you know, hey, you know, what I left was not all wrong. What I joined was not all right, and I need to, you know, connect to the one that I stepped away from in order to keep growing. But then it yeah. seemed to me that there's actually a third step there, which was redemption. So the reconciliation is to like restore the relationship, but redemption is to actually perhaps learn to overcome the thing that 
led to the division in the first place. Like, I think that a lot of things in Larry's dad's life really changed around only after Larry had reestablished relationship with him. And it makes me think that one of the reasons why reconciliation is hard, you know, is that we want people to be redeemed before we reconcile with them. Uh, but the way Christ deals with us, obviously, yeah, is he reconciled us to God and then redeemed yeah. us. So I, that was actually kind of a helpful way of framing it. It's like, yeah, in some ways we are reconciled, but I feel like there's still some things that we are trying to redeem. Okay. So, and this is also a good segue into the uh, chapter three of our right. book study here with Devil Shoots um, Round the Bend, yeah. which is really the first full chapter that talks about Connie. Right. Uh, yeah. What happened? Half again? Chinese, uh, Asiatic, uh, childhood friend who his mother was right. Yeah, half Chinese. Right, half Chinese, half Russian. Grew, but grew up in England with, uh, or at least for a few years in England with with Tom Cutter. And then uh, he went off on adventures uh, in the East, working as an airplane mechanic. And then they run into each other while he's working for a gun runner. <laughs> and in the bizarre series of twists, uh, the gun runner who's been in prison sort of loans his amazingly fancy plane and Connie to for Tom to work and generate money for him. Okay. So, See, at one point, I was... Um, Kind of questioning that, you know, how can uh, a religious person, uh, how can a person who's so spiritual uh, uh, reconcile <laughs> doing this? And at one point he says, you know, I don't do any killing. I, I, I'm not going to be part of a war. But he's basically supporting the war effects. And later on he mentions, I think it's in this chapter, he mentions <laughs> He wouldn't fight in the war. He would work extra hard to support the war as a right. mechanic or whatever. Right. And that's the thing, is like he wasn't he wouldn't take part in killing, but he was actually taking part in the war. And he even okay. said that so like supply, if you're not gonna fight, the, you have to work twice as hard. But the thing is, is he, yeah. Mm, uh, let me finish what I otherwise I'll forget it. So Sorry. I think he mentions it somewhere here that, you know, from a Western point of view, he says, you know, we find it difficult, but the Asiatics look at it differently because he said uh, they identify with the struggle of the natives against the colonials. Uh, this uh, this talks this goes to the point that one man's freedom fighter, another guy, a man's terrorist. I think I've told you that before in India when. Uh, Sri Lanka, right. uh, the, the Tam Tamil Tigers were fighting Sri Lankans. We'll see the same uh, news release. Uh, the English papers in, from abroad will say 30 militants were killed by the government forces. And in the Tamil paper, it will come out as 30 heroes lost uh, their life defending <laughs> their uh, rights. So, so yeah. Uh, that's how he justifies it. You know, they're helping the people with uh, liberty uh, or, or uh, liberation. Yeah, anyway. 
that I want yeah, to say. Yeah, so that's one way of looking at. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that's interesting. I mean, there's another way I took it though, which is that um, there's something peculiar about, like, say, the way that Buddhism relates to government and authority versus the way we're used to in the the monotheistic tradition, in the sense that uh, there is, as far as I can tell, no equivalent to the prophetic reformer's voice calling the powerful into uh, accountability. Right. Uh, that I'm aware of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, see, and, and uh, so the I idea. Don't know is, the, you're, you're too young to remember, uh, but in Vietnam, it was called Indochina, was fighting mm -hmm. against the French. The Buddhist monks will go and self-immolate themselves, set themselves on fire. Right. Uh, and uh, that's how the French left. Basically, that's how Vietnam got its independence. But then uh, the, the communists came from the north, and then uh, the stuff is history. Anyway, uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I think the Buddhist way of uh, looking at it is a little different. Okay. Yeah, so the, well, this is the interesting thing, uh, because the thing I wanted to talk about there's lots of interesting bits, but the big thing was uh, Tom Cutter has a sort of religious encounter at the end of chapter three. Right. Um, well, yeah. And sort that, of. <laughs> uh, if you want to go all the way there, then I have to admit that you were right. Because, oh. see, because you said that he went to uh, the Middle East because of what he thought happened with Beryl, um, and this is the paragraph. Beryl had put her head in the gas oven because I had been proud, righteous in the eyes of other people and unkind. That has set my life upon the course that in the end had brought me to this place, far from Southampton docks and my own people worshiping with natives in an Eastern village. Beryl had died because I was proud and unkind. How many other people should I kill like that before I died too? So you are right. That's the reason oh, you left okay. England. Okay, thank you. Um, but I think it makes it actually more, uh, it raises other questions like, uh, did he, uh, country, France, please go and leave a message if it's important. Are you um, talking to me? Yeah, I'm still talking to you. Yeah, and I just got a weird beeping on my phone instead of a phone call from France. And I can't imagine why someone from France would want to call me. Well, I couldn't also imagine why I get a spam call from France. So anyway, if it's important, hopefully they'll leave a message. Um, anyway, yeah. sorry, before that. So the interesting question for me is, you know, what happened at the end of chapter three and what does that imply? Like, say, so the, and the reason I wanna talk about this, so I wanted to contrast this with the little short story I wrote last week yeah. um, where he runs into, he uh, has an encounter with a priest or a priest, yeah. someone who's not a priest actually. So yeah. the, the way that I read chapter three you know, I have different versions of it, but let's go with this. The main way I read uh, mm. chapter three is mm. that he talks about how when he saw Connie, he looked 
familiar somehow. And then later he says, I, I figured, realized what it was. He looked like a priest. Priest, yeah. Looked like a priest, yeah. I don't know what yeah, he I don't either. Uh, yeah, because priest uh, in the sense of a Catholic priest or priest in the sense of a Buddhist thing, he would have said monk. If it was. Yeah, he probably, uh, I, I think he was probably referring to what he would call a priest, which I think actually in his tradition would probably have been an Anglican priest, actually. Um, I don't know if they use the term uh, priest, yeah. but I think they do in the Anglican Church, don't they? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, but they have yeah, weaker, that, they, have, they have weaker. They have many other ranks beyond that, yeah. yeah. Uh, which was the interesting uh, Usually so Catholics are the, uh, Catholics is the priest, the people say. But I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what made him think of him as a priest because you know he's tall and lean and he's not uh, like a, uh, the friar in, uh, in Robin Hood. Hood. <laughs> yeah. So let me. Uh, he's yeah, tall, so lean, aquiline. What does aquiline mean? What is aquiline? Like aquiline is Roman eagle. Yeah, eagle nose. Like the big long nose of a Roman. You know, kind of the Roman patrician Roman. look yeah. to it. But uh, okay. so there's a couple of things it could mean. Right, mm. uh, which is interesting. Like, like, is there a look of a priest? Like, if you look at a priest, and so you could say, well, there's a couple. The oh, let me just give you my theory on, on what this mm. all means. Uh, so, uh, I did a study a while ago, but why do we call church leaders priests? Because it's not really an office that Jesus talks about, right? Priests seem to be associated with the old Jewish sacrificial system. Right. Right. It even says, call no man father of point the gospel, which is mm. not something the church is uh, uh, much worried about, it seems. But the interesting, so I did some research on this, and the way the word priest came to be used mm. was actually because of communion. And so a couple of things happened in the first couple of centuries of Christianity. One is mm. that, you remember there's a scene where Paul talks about how there's such disorder at these love feasts and they do more harm than good. And mm. like some people eat too much and get drunk and other people are starving. And so yeah. apparently what happened was, is that the sort of the super, the, the, the overseer of the city would say, mm. okay, come on, let's, let's, he, someone had to step in and say, let's create some order here. And so the overseer okay. would say, okay, let's just, you know, share this together. And they, you know, put some rules around it. And then okay. the second thing that happened was that uh, that person also became responsible for deciding who was in and who was out. So that the person okay. who was, you know, because like these were communities were so loving, so generous, so self-sacrificial that you would have people who would show up just to kind of mooch off of it. Okay. And so they, you know, remember there's some rules about like making sure no widows put on the rolls before this and that to make sure, like they, they, they end up having to make these rules and these determinations of who's in and who's out. Okay. And so this led to the idea of in communion or excommunication, right? Oh, Is that okay. You get to mm. Who's in and who's out. And the third thing yeah. that happened, and I don't know, I haven't figured out how this happened yet. I'm sure someone must have written an essay about mm. this, but it went from this sort of mutual thing to a thing where the bishop was acting like a priest and offering the bread and wine on behalf of the congregation. Right. Um, Not just the bishop, every priest. Well, well, no, I see. Here's the thing. First it was the bishop, and the bishop mm. was acting as a priest. 
And mm. then only later did that mm. priestly function devolve to, I guess, the technical term is presbyters, the person who oversees the local parish. Okay. And so, and so that, and that became such a ubiquitous feature of their job that we no longer use that the Greek term presbyter kind of fell out of disuse, and they just became mm. called priests. And the interesting thing about that is that in this view, which is very different than how I read the, the New Testament and the Gospels, is that the priest functions like an Old Testament priest making sacrifices on behalf of the people. Uh, because they have this sort of otherworldly connection where they're set apart from the rest of humanity. And, you know, definitely Connie feels like that, right? He feels like someone Before who, you go there, before you, you go know, there, a couple of yeah. things before you go there. I wonder when Paul talks about some are teachers, some are prophets. There's no, he doesn't mention some are priests. He never mentions Yeah, priests priest is not, priest, in the New Testament, there is no office of priests. Yeah. It's really, but it was a dominant and feature a second, of Christianity for over a thousand years. And the other side of the thing, one more thing before I forget. Luther was, uh, one of the things that he mentioned was the priesthood of all believers. Right, so Lutherans do not have priests. Yeah. The priesthood of all believers. So he believes everybody's a right, priest. So, <laughs> right, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, and there's something there that is interesting and powerful, uh, but I guess by my philosophy, I'm hard to say there's something, so there's something, you know, so the, the generous view is that, okay, there's something a little off about the whole idea of a priest in Christianity. I think that's a safe mm -hmm. statement. But it's also true to say that, well, clearly it worked really well <laughs> because pretty much all the branches of Christianity that survived had that concept of, a priest. I'm pretty sure Orthodox churches do too. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's like, okay, whatever it was, it was a really powerful idea that worked really well uh, for, you know, a thousand years or so. Um, mm. uh, even though it doesn't seem like it really ha seems to have any real strong scriptural support, and it has a lot of negative consequences from our perspective. And mm. so what is the, so this to me is the interesting idea of what it means to be a priest. And I think the idea, and what's funny is going back to my little vignette, uh, mm. the, care, the father figure in that story of the father who comes to Tom Cutter in his despair and in the church yeah. and tells a little uh, uh, story about him, is that he says, well, and I'm not even sure why he said this. He says, I'm not exactly a priest. And yeah. I think the difference is the job of a priest is to be so holy that they can absolve people of their sins. That seems to be kind of the dynamic that I see happening at the end of chapter three with Connie and Tom. Tom, like Tom, uh, in a very Western sense, knows that he is personally guilty. I'm told yeah. that, I don't know if this is true, that Eastern cultures don't really have the sense of personal guilt the way we do. It's more a sense of shame of, the, of being seen by the community as having fallen short. Um, and so the concept that, of... No, but they all have, um, they ask for forgiveness. So when they ask for forgiveness, they must feel that they have sinned against God. Well, that's the interesting thing. So what I've heard, again, I don't know the truth of this, I haven't studied it in depth, is that anthropologically speaking, traditional mm -hmm. cultures 
tend to be more focused on shame in the eyes of your peers, right? Uh, is what does the community think of me and of you? And that's the primary motivating that's emotion. Yeah. That is true. Yeah, that is and true. That, the, and that's, that's idea, very, very yeah. high. That's very high. Not, you know, what you have to know, the family of you had this discussion before. Uh, you know, right. yeah. the name, the name of, uh, will be spoiled. If you go and, uh, you know, get a ticket. Like the one time, uh, I, acc the family one time I accidentally picked up the wrong uh, tenant, I forgot to return my bowling shoes. I still remember this. Right, it was a horrific okay. moment mm -hmm. for us. Yeah. It's like it was just a simple innocent mistake. It's not like I was deliberately thieving, but it was a very traumatic situation yeah. for some yeah, family right. members. And yeah. I, but it's like I, my understanding is that these kinds of, and, and that the idea of um, oh, I did something wrong, but nobody knows about it, mm. or even everyone knows about it, but they don't think it's bad or my fault. That seems contrary to that sort of traditional concept of shame. It's more a right. sort of Western notion of guilt, whatever that means. Right. Um, right. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that uh, so Tom is clearly carrying this thing, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And he feels like there's something um, that happens at this little roadside shrine that Connie has set up that allows him to break free of that to stop being that and yeah, see, i don't know he hears, uh, yeah he, he hears about this from chapter uh, the guy chapter says you know this the, is what the happens runners, and right? he asked him did you go yourself you didn't go yourself he said i did once he said um and he went there and uh, he went there in a different context because he was just going to go on his basically a final trip and he felt that uh, it does you good to have a quiet time to think like that before you take off on a dicey trip. So yeah. uh, that, is, that was his kind of motivation. So I, I may not make it, so I probably should have all the help I can get or something like that. But as this, yeah. as this guy, it was looked like a genuine reflection. He went there and uh, he knelt down yeah. and he starts reflecting. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it, like you know, there's different social cues that kind of pressured him into doing it to not want to feel left out. But then, and even the chapter said it felt like being back in his old country church. And, right. You know exactly. what that said to me is that there is a, but okay, but let, let me just say so. So there was definitely some sort of uh, spiritual encounter, uh, uh, significant spiritual encounter that Cutter had with Connie in that little roadside shrine. Yeah. You know, I think there's something, yeah, you know, what it, what it is and how deep it is, I don't know, but like there was something significant that happened there that made him feel he could live with himself in a way he was afraid to live with himself beforehand. Yeah. Right? I think there's something, yeah. it's fair to say that. Now, what's interesting yeah. to me, though, is that's very different than the kind of encounter I wrote in my story of him encountering this priest uh, this non-priest figure, mm. uh, and I wasn't even sure myself why I made the point of him saying he wasn't a priest, uh, but yeah. it felt important at the time. And I think one of the reasons was is that Connie was really uh, espousing a transcendent ideal that he embodied, and inviting. It felt like he was kind of inviting people to come under his covering. Mm. Uh, and in that, like, you know, you have not always been this, so come to me and, you know, I, you will be this. 
you devote yourself to this ideal. And what's interesting to me is that uh, the little, the father figure character in my story was the exact opposite. He said, look, I, um, uh, so kind of feel like was offering absolution, like dissolving you and being caught up in this bigger thing. Whereas my father figure was offering Tom Cutter forgiveness. Which yeah. is a different right. thing, you know, and yeah. the and he, and he offers it not on the basis of I am this perfect thing that you have failed to be, you know, just submit to me the way, you know, Connie seems to be, but rather you're cutting out. I have found Jesus. Sorry, yeah, this is mm. a there's a phone hut here. I wonder if they have some interference here that always interferes oh. with my uh, audio when I walk past it. Yeah, um, now I can hear it. You, you, yeah, interesting. Um, but it was very much like, you know, uh, I am not the priest who can save you. Jesus is. But I, as someone who has uh, sinned like you and received grace, I can point you to Jesus that you may have grace too. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but, but, but uh, can I interrupt you? Sure. The difference between what you said what i heard you mm -hmm. say was i cannot do it and you cannot do it only jesus can restore you type of thing right i'm paraphrasing yeah. it whereas yeah. the buddhist thinking is only you yourself can do it give uh, yeah. down the love of self uh, uh, by 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 cutting out part of your body, by, by uh, denying yourself uh, the pleasures, uh, denying yourself the hunger, and that's how you uh, get peace. Whereas we, we are, yeah. our Christian thought is different. Well, yeah. Only uh, God can, only Jesus yeah. can give you peace. Yeah. So, 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 so yeah. You cannot, uh, do what's funny, you cannot do it on your own. What's mm. funny, right, mm. is that in practice, a lot of mm. Christianity looks a lot like. Uh, that Buddhist experience, right? Mm. And it's, I think it's fair to say that that is a component of Christianity. And that's mm. one of the things that I've been, you know, harping on a lot about is that, you know, this, this idea, the, the, the fascinating thing um, is this idea of forgiveness, which mm. I don't think has an exact, there's, there's parallels, but I don't, think, I don't know if there's necessarily an exact analog in Eastern religions of forgiveness. Uh, it is. Ah, okay. What is the, the concept of it there? Uh, yeah, the concept of it, and I asked uh, Ramanathan, because that's one of the fundamental differences between Christianity and Hinduism. And, and I asked him, how do you get forgiveness for your sins? Mm -hmm. Right? And he said, yeah. well, I don't know. Uh, by going to the temple and uh, offering a sacrifice, by, you know, um, as a payment for my sin, and I feel that I thought, remember the but I, but I thought, remember the story. Yeah, right, right. yeah. By, I thought like works, in traditional karma, mm. right? Yeah, there's there's the religious works, and then I guess also with karma, there's the idea that uh, I have to make up for my or dharma. I guess I get those two confused. I have to kind yeah. of make up for my bad deeds by good deeds, or else I have to make it up in the next life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, the interesting right. idea of Christianity mm. is that um, there's a kind of forgiveness that comes from being in relationship 
yeah. independent of work. Right. Uh, the, and the the interesting thing is that, as far as I know, uh, you know, Cutter stays uh, as a, a very virtuous and and upright uh, aircraft, you know, but very much single uh, aircraft uh, mogul for the rest of his life. Right. right. He kind of becomes Connie's boss and protector and. And whatever, right. and I don't right. even remember much what happens to Cutter after this because I always, I was just last time I read, I was just focused on Connie, and the right. little twists and turns, and Cutter uh, seemed like a very passive character, just kind of going along with whatever made Connie happy. I don't know if that's true. That's or not, interesting. We'll that's interesting that you said that. That's interesting that you were concentrating on Connie. I was concentrating on Cutter when I was a little boy. I ah, had, Connie was a side issue. Interesting. So my my, my um, you know, the, the quote hero or the hero of the book was Cutter and how he dealt with issues, how he built his uh, empire, and uh, Connie was like a side issue. <laughs> well, you, you, yeah, you thought it was all about because you read the encyclopedia. You talked about Connie. No, 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 no. But but even I think when I read it then, I was more hmm. struck by the uh, the religious dynamics of Connie. Yeah. As he's yeah. spreading the thing, but yeah, you know, and certainly even now, I think you know. But it's not just the Russian Cutter, but you also focus on Cutter from a professional perspective, right? Rather than from mm. a personal perspective, and mm. that to me is the interesting thing. Uh, you know, picking yeah. up more on. Uh, yeah. Another thing we talked about some of the you know nakedness and potential homoeroticism in the, yeah. the earlier chapters. Uh, he yeah. uh, another way of looking at it though. He talks about how he saw. Uh, Connie naked except for shorts and then there's one scene where he's like totally putting on his pants, shorts and pants. Another way of looking yeah. at that though is the sense of innocence. Yeah. Uh, you know, nakedness as being innocent. And you know, th there's a sense in which you know, Connie is innocent. He has not, you know, married and betrayed a woman because he never appears to have any interest in women. Whereas they make a point about he doesn't take a native wife like all the other uh, mechanics and pilots did. Um, right. And I, um, so he's really he like doesn't a, smoke, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink. Yeah. He definitely seems like he's, you know, beyond earthly cares. The other thing that's interesting to me is that his, um, you know, self, his, I mean, literally his, 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 the absolution is to lose yourself in devotion to good work. Right, not right. religious work, exactly. but airplane mechanic work. Right. And it's, and right. it's a very Silicon Valley uh, sort yeah. of view of the world and living yeah. here I can say you know I, I and this is interesting like he comes across as kind of a Buddha messianic type of figure um, right. and you know it does certainly have certain interesting resonances to uh, you know the enlightened one the Buddha um, mm. but you know the the thing that's always struck me mm. and very much has been at the heart of, of questions I've been asking over the last few years is that uh, you know coincident with the idea of the church leader being a priest has mm. been the idea of celibacy right is, mm. and I was reading about the history of that recently too it's like where did that come from because in Jewish times mm. you you know you, to be a good Jewish man you had to be married like there was no right option, like if you were single that you, you were ostracized um, right and so you know they uh, it's a complicated story but the, the short version is that, well, uh, in, in times of people competing for being perceived as serious, 
the fact that you were serious enough to forsake marriage to pursue God with your whole heart was seen as a really strong signal of your sincerity. And so groups and communities that had those kinds of people, uh, there was a bias to regard that as being more holy, uh, perhaps partly because of the example of the Apostle Paul, partly because also it was really hard and a lot of things that a lot of people would not want to do, uh, made it a very uh, authentic signal. Uh, And then uh, the side effect of it, which I think the author said made it more uh, uh, compulsory later on, was that because the priests could not marry and have children, they were outside the usual legal, relational, political entanglement that everyone else was. Uh, So it it had a a signaling effect and a pragmatic political effect uh, that made it a very powerful and enduring institution for a thousand years or more, that even if it's yeah. uh, falling apart about this current generation. And so the interesting yeah. idea that, you know, uh, and this is actually the, the, the problem I have with all sorts of uh, enlightenment or legalism or whatever, is that, well, you know, the, the question I'm asking myself, right, is, is it possible to be that devoted to God and actually still be married and have a normal family life and a normal work life or something at least similar to that. And, you know, there's a case to be made that, you know, I haven't proved the answer to the I'm still working on it. I'm still hopeful. You know, there's, mm. you know, there's a, uh, you know, Paul himself said. Uh, are you near that uh, booth again? Because I can't hear you. Yeah. No, I'm actually near my phone now. I don't know why. But yeah, but that, that, you know, the, the question of, is it possible to be totally sold out to God and also, you know, be fully in the world, being married, having a job, having kids, having obligations, managing money, you know, wielding earthly power. And, uh, you know, I, I believe it's true. Uh, I, I hope it's true. Uh, but I, I feel like I haven't necessarily proved that it's true. Uh, in my own experience, okay. at least. Uh, and so the... I was thinking, but you know, uh, uh, the thing is, uh, that begs the question about what do you mean by fully devoted to God um, is the question, right? You know, was Billy Graham an example of uh, fully devoted to God and God's work and still had a family life, but uh, the biblical examples are not that good. Because if somebody uh, uh, was solely devoted to God, the children were with a stray. <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that. You're not a good father. If you're a very good, very good religious leader, you're not a good father. You're a good father. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot... and, you know, and I think part of it, you know, and part of the reason was, you know, for most of church history, the religious role models were single men. And therefore, there was a sense that. You know, even when in the Protestant churches in the 50s and 60s, I think it was sort of expected that if you were a pastor, the church came first, right? And your family yeah. came second. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, one of the tensions we had in our church was the transition from father to son, where, you know, sometimes I felt like it was a really hard balance because the pastor was the father and the boss of the junior yeah. pastor who was being groomed to succeed him. And it felt like it was really hard. Uh, Ernie, same thing, Hassan. 
Pimping is what's that? Yeah. 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 And the, and you know, it, it's one thing to say that like, hey, you know, it shouldn't be a problem because certainly, and this is to me, uh, you know, kind of a larger question I keep asking myself is, is it possible to reverse the curse of Adam? Um, where it seems like being faithful to God and honoring your wife uh, and, you know, doing the work you have to do are all in this very complex, um, mm. And I don't mind there being tension, but it, it often seems like there's hard conflicts that it's not clear what the right way to, to reconcile those are. And yeah. the interesting thing for me, just getting back to the story, <laughs> is that, mm. you know, I, like in my version, like in this version of the story, it seems clear at this point out that his absolution is found in following Connie and the path of hard work and sort of, you know, the absolution in that. And, um, you know, that is a kind of peace, right? To say like, hey, you know, just lose it. And to me, that's been the Eastern vision of, of heaven and of God is to lose yourself in the absolute, mm. right? But that the mm, Christian yeah. vision is radically different than that, which is that God loves you and yeah. it's more communion than it is true union, uh, right? Yeah. Is that, uh, and I realize yeah. this actually, this, the question that I realized that um, when I went through my spiritual crisis in my 20s, um, mm. where I felt like I can believe that God is good in some abstract sense, but I don't mm. know if God actually is good in a way that I care for, or that is good for mm. me, or that is worthwhile for me to pursue. And yeah. another way of framing that is that, actually, does God love me as me? Or does he just, you know, want me to be dissolved into purely him, where I have nothing of myself left? And I think mm. the answer to Christianity is, is, is that it's very much the former, is that I don't, that God doesn't want me to just be in the undifferentiated mass of him. He wants me to be fully me uh, in him, in relationship with him, the way Adam was before the fall, but right. amidst all the complexity uh, well, David, of God, God rather than the garden of <laughs> David, King David is a good uh, example of that. King David. Is in in which sense is he a good example? See, God loved him the way he was, in the sense, you know, in right. spite of what so, so David it, was, God still loved him. And, right, in, right. You know. So, so, so I, I guess the piece about the, God. Then, what the second part is true, then David could not be a man after God's own heart unless he was a perfect person. Uh, well, yeah, so here's the interesting Nirvana, thing, though. Seventh heaven, yeah, right. right, of the Hindus. Right, so, so, they, you know, so, 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 so in your, my your point was right, the communion is more important to God than union. Right, but, it's, but here, I think here's the, 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 the other point, using the hmm. framework from before, is that hmm. um, David was clearly reconciled to God. He had an amazing relationship with God, right? Yeah. Uh, there were many aspects of David's life that were not redeemed. Right, his his whole as someone said he would never make it to the cover of Focus on the Family. <laughs> right, his family life, his marriage, his kids were literally yeah. national disasters. Yeah. Right, and so you know, and you know, I have God has grace for David, and how can I not? Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. at the same time, I feel like um, the opportunity is that you know, David was a, a high watermark in demonstrating 
you know, someone who managed to maintain an authentic relationship with God despite being a king and despite being, a, you know, a uh, less than ideal uh, father and husband. Um, yeah, I like the, your definition. And, I, I like your definition. What you said was absolutely true. The God that we believe in believes in communion rather than a union, like the uh -huh. Hindus believe. So uh, communion right. is what God wants. You, you, you started by asking the question, does God want to love me because he wants me to be me, or he wants me to dissolve myself in him? Isn't that what you asked? Right. Right. But then I think the thing is, but I think there's a, I guess, more of a question. Who is the me that God loves? Uh, and this is a, a, uh, a challenging question because yeah. uh, the, 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 the hard truth I've had to discover is that the me I thought I am was not the me that God loves, right? I thought, you know, the person who would, you know, do all these things and whatever, like, I thought that God wanted me to be that. And it's like, well, no, it's because, I mean, the whole, the, the paradox of the cross, right? That if you deny yourself, it's not merely self-affirmation. Right, and I think that's the the flip side of that is that in order to enter into full communion with God, you know, God accepts us wherever we are, but He yeah. does not leave us where we are. Oh, right. Yeah. He'll leave us as we are. Right. He wants us to be growing. Like yeah. The way I frame it these days is closer to Jesus. Right, and that's exactly. the but uh, the difference I think is uh, I like this framing is that reconciliation. Rather than the other way around. Yeah. You're breaking up again. Huh? So I don't know. You're breaking up again. I can't hear you. Hmm. Hello? 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 Hi, Ernie? Testing, testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, now three. Now I can hear you. Now I can hear yeah. you, but I can't hear you at all before that. I got too far away from my phone, and so. You couldn't hear me, so oh, yeah. I have to carry my phone yeah. with me. So, <laughs> I know because uh, so, I'm, I'm using oh, my hearing aid, so the same thing happens to me sometimes. Yeah. Right, yeah. and but you know the point being, of course, that uh, you know as we get closer to God, it improves our connection <laughs> with everyone else, exactly. and I think more importantly, with who we were meant to be. Right, that we were meant to be in the image of Jesus, and that uh, redemptiveness. And I feel like that's the interesting thing is that. Because of, um, let's call it the trade-off someone like Connie has to make, right? Is he has to uh, give up a lot of things of this world in order yeah. to really enter into God. It's like, okay, and that therefore, and like, so that's good for him. But that means that kind of Tom, if he's going to, you know, receive that full measure of absolution as Connie, has to kind of give up the same thing. Uh, right, he ends up, uh, you know, at least in my memory of the book, becoming almost sort of a, a, you know, from a worldly perspective, of course, he's got all the money and all the power and all this. But yeah. in terms of a character, it feels like he's almost an appendage on Connie's story. And a lot of people right. read the book that way. But the interesting thing yeah. for me is that, you know, one of the, the um, things people always talk about, you know, pastors always complain about how people, uh, it's hard to get people motivated to do stuff for the church and, and that, but like to me, the problem has always been one of modeling, right? Is mm. that, as I said, you know, you know, it's true we want to be like Jesus. On the other hand, if everyone stayed single and died when they were 33 years old, you know, we'd be extinct. So clearly, right. you cannot follow Jesus literally. 
Um, but then how do we follow Jesus? And that to me yeah. is the interesting, and like, uh, this is things like, so the, the, the Buddhist solution of absolution gives him peace and a way forward. And it's a wonderful thing that it does that. I, wanna, I don't want to deny that it has great value, but it's different than the kind of redemption that, you know, I was going for in my story, right? Where the idea is that maybe he could, you know, through this non-priest figure, find his way to Jesus, find his way to forgive himself and not need to run away and maybe actually be able to have, you know, a wife and child and family in England. Right. And that feels like so, a uh, if you're if you're reading it happier, for the first time, you don't know, right? If you're reading it for the first time, you don't know how the story is going to end. So right. Anyway, but, but the but the you we don't know. But the 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 you know the the uh, you know, and I'm cheating obviously because I do know something about the story going end. Right. But you know that know. is, you know, and and that's the other thing is that you also, like I said before, you notice that um, the the concept of personal piety and social justice is, as far as I can tell, largely absent in Eastern cultures and political systems. You, know, you, see, you have a few exceptions like Ashoka, who really tried to bring a Buddhist morality uh, you know, and enlightenment to his kingdom. But you don't have this sense of, um, you know, both the, the prophetic reformers uh, but also the incarnational redeemers like William Wilberforce, who was a politician and married had kids, and his people in the Clapham sect like Wedgwood, who was a, you know, uh, or the Guinness family in mm. in Ireland, right? Like those sorts mm. of role models where they see themselves as not just living apart to set an example of, of devotion, but mm. incarnating into the world to make it mm. a better place. And what's funny is that, like, you know, they, you, you kind of get this, it's like, yeah, like, you, you literally get, actually, no, it's really blunt. Connie doesn't seem like he's justifying uh, this um, gun running, whatever, because he believes in the Asiatic cause. I think he's just doing it because he believes in aircraft maintenance as a spiritual discipline. Mm, like, you feel be. like if he, if this, you know, if that, if, um, you know, the, at least that's kind of the um, the sense I get is that he didn't seem like he was. He seemed like, well, because I'm living in this society, I have an obligation to defend it, and so, but I won't kill. And there is this distinction between, right? Like we talked about before, there seems to be at least a contradiction, on, uh, or at least a paradox between his personal unwillingness to kill and his willingness to aid in the war effort, right? It's interesting because uh, that brings a good point, Ernie. I think, uh, remember, we talk about the, in the modern world, conscientious objectors. So, uh, yeah. so I joined the army and I don't want to take a, a gun and go and shoot the Germans, but I'm going to work in a factory and produce bombs. You know, we never thought right. about it that way. Just now, just now you mentioned it. So we feel that, you know. Uh, yeah, like yeah. the... Um, or the and there's like there's two there's two other versions of that. One is the uh, the draft dodgers who don't want right. to be any part of this, and so they run away to to uh, Mexico. But the other is you know the more interesting one, which is more the Martin Luther King type civil disobedience. It's like mm -hmm. no, I believe what you're doing is not just you know something that offends me personally, but actually mm -hmm. absolutely wrong, and therefore I will have no part of it, 
And if the society says it's necessary, well, then jail me as an enemy of society. Right. You know, and, you know, and the, um, it's an interesting, uh, you know, from this perspective, and this is maybe an ungenerous one, but, you know, it feels to me to say, well, I don't want to kill, but I will support others who do. Uh, um, like, well, I mean, in a sense, we all do, right? If our country goes to war, yeah. we all do. Right. And the thing is, is that like, you know, but, but, but for me, it's, it's the, it, it is sort of understanding that they are paying a heavier price and I'm getting off easy. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah they, you know, they and, price, and yeah. right. You know, and even, even not those who just die paying the ultimate price, but also those who have to kill, you know, having to learn to, to do that is a thing. I'm, it's really weird. Live with it. Yeah. I'd note it. Live with it. Yeah. Is that yeah. I, um, we were watching, my wife and I were watching this uh, Korean soap operas, Korean dramas, and right. set in the 100 years ago, and one of the, the characters who's uh, sort of a villain, sympathetic villain character, is a butcher. Because in, in mm. Buddhist cultures, but, butters, butchers were considered unclean, mm. right? Because anyone who spilled blood was considered, right. so ironically, of yeah. course, people would still eat meat. But the ones who actually did the dirty deed of killing the animal were the ones who were unclean, who bore the social stigma. And I can't help wonder if there's some of that same sort of double standard going on. Um, But but the other thing is that, you know, the more general sort of like, you know, let's say life is hard. Civilization is hard. Devotion is hard. And like, you know, in order to survive, you, you know, so in order to create this island of absolution, and you know freedom and peace for someone like tom and the people there like you have to say this is the thing that i am focusing on and everything else i'm going to be agnostic about right i will not kill i will do my work to the best and what other people do is really up to them i'm not going to do it yeah and it's like you know uh there's something noble about that um about that single-minded focus but there's also something kind of sad about it too Right. right. Like I, I right. like I can admire that is like a, it's a hugely difficult and challenging and sacrificial thing to do to live that way. And yeah. it's far better than thinking because you're an expert on this, that you can mouth off of what other people should and shouldn't be doing. Right. Like mm. uh, too many of our religious figures get themselves into trouble. But like, right. it's, it's like, you know, exactly. like, you know, Billy Carter, I think, faced that. Uh, sorry, Billy Carter, Billy Graham faced that tension. Like he was pretty good about not about like being willing to work with presidents and people of power from every side and not, you know, get himself in trouble by, you know, excluding people. But that left a real wounding in the African-American community that he never spoke up about segregation or civil rights or any Social of those justice, things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like, you know, is, you know, there's, I can admire and I can admire the wisdom of keeping your mouth shut and not meddling in things that are outside your purview. But yet yeah. it also is sad uh that you know and the and i think the way i look at it is that this is all really hard but this is the thing that needs to be done if we are going to be christ in this world we have to learn right. like yesterday we talked about do not do not judge but you have to help your friend your your brother get the speck out of his eye and you can't just say it's not my problem i don't care right yeah. am i my brother's keeper and it is see not that an was easy the thing, thing that uh, yeah that was the thing that uh, see in a way uh, was he judging if he says, let me stick the speck out of your eyes, is, I'm trying to help you. 
I never picked up on yeah. that. It's not say hey, you have a spec, something wrong with you type of thing, rather than saying, let me take the spec out of it. I missed that completely. So I'm trying to help you remove the spec, even though I have a spec right. in my eye. Well, yeah, the problem is, is that like, yeah, is, is, is that the, the, and the, you know, at least what I have experienced is that the mm. reason I'm, is, 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 is to make the flip from, I am upset at you for having a speck in your eye because it irritates my plank, uh, yeah. to, um, you know, once I get past the plank, um, you know, I think the image I said about turning uh, uh, planks into creches, into mangers. Is that is that inviting Jesus in and saying, okay, um, you know, if I've had grace for my plank, uh, I, if Jesus, if I can see how Jesus had grace for my plank, I can have grace for your speck. And this is the other thing that I realize is not seem to be well understood. Most people think of grace as what I would call covering grace. Okay, it's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to hold it against you that you have this problem. It's like, okay, yeah. that's a good first step. But what Christ is really about, I think, is redeeming grace. It's like he wants to get the speck out of our eyes, right? Yeah. He wants to actually heal us and make us whole and right. have us live in communion with him and other people. And yeah. like to say that we all have specks, I think maybe the difference is that to me, judging is when I say like, you have this problem that I don't, you should be like me. Right. 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 You know, and it's like, you know, I don't want to have your plank. Thank you very much. I'd rather stick with my speck. <laughs> and that um that vision of grace and you know that that idea of brotherhood these are my brothers that i want yeah. them to be uh spec free with me yeah. and i yeah. will do hard work with my plank so that i can help them rather yeah. and and you know to me that this is christianity saying like what is the grace you need from me so that you can grow closer to jesus not right. you know uh not what is this is the grace I need. This is what I need from you, so that you can, you know, be holy. Um, right. Yeah. So. Ah, okay. Right. Let's we'll see what happens. Okay, you're cutting out again. Okay. Okay. We covered through. most of an hour. We covered a lot of territory. Uh, yeah, I think so because you know, we thoughts? never talked about the character of uh, Shafter, and uh, uh, you know he um, he's an interesting character, and uh, he probably was saying the same thing. I'm not killing anybody. I'm just doing a business uh, type of thing. Yeah, and then he uh, presented uh, very uh, sympathetically as a like a man with. Uh, uh, Nerves of iron, and you know, yeah. very fair and, and, and brave. Um, and basically, he seemed to be—he's not playing both sides against each other. He's just supporting, from what I read there, what I remember. Yeah, he's supplying mostly for the underdog, and that's how he justifies his work, I think. And then, uh, and he was very kind to uh, Tom Carter. Uh, practical yeah. reasons, but still, you know. Yeah, and then uh, and it was really noble of Connie. Um, from what we know of Connie Shacklin, you know, I mean, he's a, a good person. So he he could have yeah. he knows that guy is in jail. He's going to be there in jail for years and years. He could have uh, hired a uh, run off, yeah, run out, run the plane service, which or sold it or whatever. Yeah, but he didn't. <laughs> right. 
he said, this is what I would like to do, but we must go to him and get his permission and make sure he's happy with permission, the terms. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. But he, yeah. Was, he was definitely, I think that he, that was, that was two things I wanted to mention there, uh, sorry, I forget. One is that, uh, that this is what, one thing I noticed about Connie that I identified with is that he never really cared much about money, but he always seemed to have enough. He was good at what he did. Right. And right. I, I, I feel, I feel that way like too, because I grew up, you know, not really worrying about money, not really caring that much about material things. Right. Uh, I've never been that concerned about money and I've always felt like I've had the capacity to earn if I needed to. Uh, that right. has, I believe has been tested and caused some stress at various points in the past with my entrepreneurship, but that's another discussion. Yeah. The yeah, other thing that struck me was uh, uh, Strickland said uh, that I said, this is a hell of a deal. Uh, if I, someone had given me a deal like this, I wouldn't hmm. end up where I am now. Like you get the sense that he's not necessarily ashamed of what he's done, but he's at least embarrassed. He knows this is kind of a skanky thing that he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, even if right. he thinks he it's all right, wrong, yeah. And it, yeah. It's, yeah, and it's like, but you know, he like he felt like he didn't really have a choice, um, you know, and you know, Tom Cruise was ridiculously lucky. This, like, under yeah, under the circumstances, it was it ended up being a win-win situation for everybody. Yeah, Connie yeah. and Strecker and that. Connie, but, you know, uh, even Shafter, even Shafter, even Shafter, right? The yeah. The, you know, having to get thrown in prison for a few years obviously was not an ideal thing, but given, you know, given that it was going to end one way or the other because it's not sustainable, like he knew that eventually they would get wise to the fact that they would shoot him down because he's, you know, trying to basically arm an insurrection. Uh, yeah. So it, it, arguably this, this ended up for him um, better than he had any right to expect. Yeah, see, again, we know what happened because the Dutch eventually left. So is that, right. uh, uh, we don't know the story here, but you know, eventually if they had left, uh, the uh, Indonesians would have released him. Right. But he was their friend. And, you know, he, he was fighting for right, their yeah. cause. So they he, would have released him. Ally. Yeah, he he could have helped start the, the, the Indonesian airline or whatever. Right? Yeah, Indonesian airline. Yeah, right. yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. yeah, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. But, but you did get the I mean, sense that, that he was more of an opportunist. Yeah, I, I can imagine that, but it still felt like he was doing it more as an opportunist than as a, as a sort of a fervent sense of righting colonial wrongs, right? So right. in some right. sense, right. Even, yeah. even that would have been, you know, uh, I mean, I don't think he had the prejudices against the natives and the Asiatics the way a lot of uh, countrymen did. So, you know, there's, he's, um, but certainly you get the sense that if he could have made an honest living somewhere else, uh, probably, he probably would have. Uh, the interesting thing, Ernie, is he's an American. Americans are yeah, not that was colonial. Funny. They were not they were colonial. They were, they were, they were more anti-colonial leader. <laughs> what is someone saying? More anti-America is business. No, uh, that's true. That could be, but uh, we are anti-colonial, right? Uh, uh, in well, some ways. So. Well, they're they're against the interference by other Western powers in the Western Hemisphere. What happens in the Eastern yeah. Hemisphere? I think America has been mostly like whatever. Um, it's not like they were agitating for Britain to pull out of India or anything. I mean, to be fair, the whole concept of anti-colonial didn't really exist until the 1950s as a topic of conversation. Um, you know, and there's an interesting thing, uh, another side point, is that it, um, the other thing I kind of like about this story is that uh, the one really innovative and bizarre thing that Connie does is he mm. marries commerce and spirituality. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, his religion yeah. is basically doing a good job and in airplanes, which is, you know, very much the high tech of its era, right? Uh, right? Like I said, there's a lot here for someone from Silicon Valley to resonate with of entrepreneurship and doing the hard, exactly. difficult, crazy tasks on the edges yeah. of civilization. I mean, we get to do it in air conditioned offices, so it's not quite the backbreaking manual labor then. But it's very much, you know, Silicon Valley is known for being a place that is incredibly polyglot, right, with all sorts of different people from different cultures coming in here and people working insanely long hours to uh, get outsized returns. Um, uh, and yeah, go ahead, finish. No, I just think it's, it's just a fascinating, you know, is, uh, although what I was is that like, you know, uh, as I like to say, Pluto is kind of a nasty God, uh, but he's a much better boss than Aries, right? Is that when you're in a world of war, right? Like, you know, Muhammad, you know, was involved in a lot of military conflicts and, right. you know, as were the Jews uh, and Christianity, you know, in Europe. And, you know, so having a religion that's tied up with commerce rather than warfare feels like a step up. Mm. And it's only one I prefer, uh, even though it has its own downsides. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, before I finish, I think I want to say your grandfather had a plaque, uh, had a plaque which said, ah. work is worship. Work is worship. He put a lot of emphasis on work. Yeah, on working all the time, work that comes up before everything, and so work is worship. So, which is what Connie is doing there. <laughs> kind yeah. Of different way, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. It, 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 yeah. Uh, which is which okay, is huh? which is very very plutonic, I would say. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. You know that was another novel. This would be a fun novel to read. It's more science fiction, mm. so I don't know if you'll want to go there, and it's really long and broke. Mm. Uh, mm. Scariest. But it's called, just to mention it, it's, it's called Red Storm Rising, and it's set I as a science fiction. I may have told you about it before. It, it's oh, set, okay. Yeah, it's set in the distant future where mm. uh, humans have colonized the solar system, mm. um, but they've evolved this bizarre uh, version of the Roman Empire where oh. they worship kind of the 12, the, like the different gods are, are sort of turned into these principles. And they have this ridiculously genetically modified caste system where the super mm -hmm. intelligent, super powerful golds rule over everything. And then there's specialized blues for technology and reds for mining and uh, greens for, uh, you know, uh, uh, entertainment. Uh, uh, blues are pilots, greens are technologists, browns are servants. Mm -hmm. And they're all genetically engineered for their own particular caste. Um, oh, okay. But one of the things, the things they talk about is that the old Roman gods are seen as different uh, human principles and people, mm -hmm. when they go to school, they kind of pledge into one of those houses. So the hero is, mm -hmm. is in the house of, of war, of Mars, which is really about, uh, you know, just fighting, right, and kind of anger. Whereas his nemesis is uh, a guy called the Jackal, who's from the house of Pluto, which is about money and greed. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what's interesting is that like one of his nemesis is there, but then one of his allies, surprisingly, turns out to be from that house as well. And uh, and this ally, interesting, he says he's against uh, the, the the gold domination, not because he believes in the equality of man, but because he's a mm. capitalist and wants to see human expanding. And he feels mm. like this militaristic gold 
uh, domination is bad for business. Uh, mm. <laughs> and it, it's just it, it, it's one of my favorite stories, even though it's some of it's really, really hard to read because it gets really brutal uh, in a lot of places. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. But you know, this, this, this contrast of moving from an Aries ruled world to a Pluto ruled world is something that's been oh, okay. uh, sticking with me. Anyway, um, are we done? Uh, we are done. Look at your email. Okay. Okay. I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye bye. Talk to you later, Dad. Right. Love you. Bye bye. Uh, love you, Ma. Love you. Love you. Bye bye.